You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity to open the Word of God and to think together in the Spirit this Lord's Day. Please guide our reflection and how we take it in and grasp your truth. Uh, Together we give you thanks and praise in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. We are in the second half of Acts chapter 1. Last week we looked at Acts 1, 1 through 11. And uh, that little box on your study sheet there uh, will give you an idea of what we covered last week. The first 11 verses breaks down easily into two promises, two commands, and two questions. So just to really quickly review those, uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the second coming of Christ. The two commands, the command to wait for the Holy Spirit and the command to witness to the ends of the earth. And the two questions, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? First question. The second question, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? And I suggested last week that if you struggle with the ascension and the miraculous nature of the ascension, A good question to pose for you in terms of alternative worldviews, and I express it there. Uh, This is in my book, Second Thoughts for Skeptics, this question. Are we the accidental product of an impersonal universe, subject to blind chance and random forces, existing in a sphere of energy devoid of promise, plan, purpose, and fulfillment, or... Are we the holy possession of God in Christ, personally chosen by God, predestined for communion with God, adopted into the community of God's people, recipients of God's grace, redeemed by his personal sacrifice on our behalf, and signed, sealed, and delivered by the promised Holy Spirit? You see, in that polarization of worldviews, kind of the it put in sharp contrast between a kind of impersonal, materialistic, secularist worldview and a theologically centered worldview. Uh, So taking up, I'm going to read Acts chapter 1, verse 12, through to the end of the chapter. three basic paragraphs descriptive of this waiting period. To set the scene, 50 days after the resurrection, Pentecost happens. Pentecost literally meaning 50 days. It's part of the Jewish calendar of worship and celebration. 50 days after Passover, for us 50 days after the resurrection, Forty days, Jesus was physically, visibly with them, teaching them, and on many occasions proving the reality of the resurrection to the disciples. And that's more than the twelve, but to a company of disciples. This is the waiting period of the last ten days of that 50-day period. 
It's almost like Acts 1 is a bit of a prologue because life in the early church takes off at Pentecost. That's when, in a sense, the story really begins. But I think this waiting period is instructive. And it teaches us something of, uh, in several areas, I think, which we'll explore briefly, uh, something of the importance of this prologue in describing the Christian life. So verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And you may have a notation in your scriptures that uh, that's about a kilometer, less than a mile. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. We don't know if that's an upper room or now a house that one of the disciples, maybe Mary, uh, had. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. As you know, there were two Judas-named disciples. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up, and just the language of that would imply a formality of proclamation beginning, stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. That's a quote from Psalm 69. There's two Psalms. More in a moment. Verse 18. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field and there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Alcademia, that is, field of blood. For, as Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Verse 21, therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning, with John, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabas, or also, also known as Justice, Barsabas meaning son of the Sabbath, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two have you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Somehow in the wisdom of Luke and the Holy Spirit, Bringing closure to the Judas incident and uh, 
spending this time in solidarity together as a group of disciples, an expanding group of disciples, and choosing a 12th person. Uh, I don't know if we're, this is where Texas A&M got the idea of the 12th man or not, but the 12th person, and how we should think about apostolic succe- succession or apostolic tradition is something that I think we, we probably need to reflect on. If you just think for a moment, and Esvaldo Padilla uh, who was here last week, and he was probably thinking, why am I listening to Doug when I've written a book on the Acts of the Apostles? No, that's a cynical perspective, but uh, he's written a, a really good book on Acts of the Apostles, and he raises the interesting point how Luke's history is unique, because if you just think about it, Acts of the Apostles, wouldn't you expect then that Acts of the Apostles would be a kind of 12 chapters on each of these apostles and what they did and where they went. We don't know how the gospel got to Egypt, but it did early. We have a hint of how it got to Ethiopia and Sudan through the Philip's evangelism. We don't know how the gospel got to Rome. We know that Paul was trying to get to Rome, but it was because there was already a church there. We don't really know the spread of the gospel to to Asia. Instead of 12 chapters with each chapter giving a history and a bio of the apostles and where they went, we really have the story of two, two apostles, Peter and then Paul. And the reason why these two are singled out, and Paul not being the 12th apostle, The reason really is theologically driven. And the primary question that the book of Acts is working on is the Gentile mission. That here the gospel of Jesus Christ is going worldwide. It's no longer limited to Israel and to the geography or to the ethnicity of the Jews. It has now become a global outreach of the gospel. I think that's Luke's guiding thought. He's Greek. It makes sense that then the the Gentile speaking, who grew up uh, speaking Greek, not Hebrew, would be the person that would articulate this global mission in two volumes, his gospel and then in Acts. Number one, uh, praying together, names. Uh, There's just a few little interesting aspects to how Luke describes this new list of names, which is the same names is Luke 6, but with a few differences. Simon, Peter, Simon becomes Peter now, and instead of being grouped with his biological brother Andrew, which always was Peter and Andrew, now in Acts he's grouped with the other lead apostle, John. And along with the disciples, Luke refers to the women, presumably meaning Mary, Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna, described in Luke 8. But he might also be referring to some of the wives of the men. Special mention is made of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In the past, they had been unbelieving, but now they believed and belonged to the intimate group of disciples. What a story that would have been of how Jesus' brothers and sisters came to believe 
that indeed he was the Messiah. Because uh, if, you, if you want a story about how the brothers reacted negatively to Jesus, just look at John 7. Number two, solidarity. They ate together, they slept together, and most importantly, they prayed together. Uh, remember that snow apocalypse that uh, Birmingham suffered through? It was interesting, the configuration that some people experienced. Um, there was a group of faculty and students that were housed at Beeson uh, for that 24-hour period of time. Uh, it's just interesting how throwing people together like that in an intimate and practical way does create a certain sense of solidarity. Uh, the best uh, theological conference I ever went to was in Cienavaca, Mexico. 15 North American theologians, 15 Latin American theologians for three days in a fairly poor village, sleeping on cots, eating at one big table, and sharing papers. But of course, we shared a whole lot more than simply academic papers. We shared life together for those three days. Well, the disciples are having something of that experience. What's next? Where do we go from here? And they are praying earnestly and intensely. They are eating together and sleeping together. That does produce a certain kind of solidarity. And number three, Judaism is defined or redefined in some ways, always not plan B in God's eyes, but the one and only plan. The believers saw themselves simply as fulfilled as simply as fulfilled Judaism, the beginning of the eschatological Israel, and their practice continued to be that of the Jews. And they went to the temple, they prayed together, they did not see themselves as contradicting the Old Testament. They saw themselves as fulfilling the Old Testament. And therefore Jesus being the true Messiah in his God, uh, Luke commends Christianity as the purest form of Judaism. True Judaism is not a matter of ethnicity nor outward ritual, but of inner heartfelt conviction led by the Spirit. If you belong to Christ, Paul said, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So these three things are reflected in this prologue. The names of the disciples, and its inclusion of people that we didn't know had had this conversion experience, solidarity and Judaism defined. Now, how the church, the early church, in this uh, earliest of forms, processed Judas is an interesting story in itself, a kind of case study for... And who's doing the lead on this? Peter. Peter the denier is dealing with Judas the betrayer. Interesting to put these two stories in contrast to one another because Peter has now emerged having truly been reconciled and accepted and received. Uh, I mean, it certainly, it certainly reminds us of the weakness of the human condition, our proneness to, to sin, and uh, I don't know if Peter can fall that way through denial, certainly anyone can. 
But now he emerges as a leader, uh, not as a tainted individual who is marginally accepted because God has offered forgiveness to him, but fully restored. John 21 is a beautiful passage describing that restoration where Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And each time Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. That's a passage that speaks of reconciliation, restoration. Uh, and Peter is the one who stands. Now, what's also, is they're in prayer, and what are they praying? Uh, they're really praying two psalms. At least two psalms come to the fore in this description of how to process Judas. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. It'd be interesting for you to go back and, and read those psalms. Uh, they lift uh, the Acts, Luke, describing the situation. Certainly all of this is so abbreviated and edited. But Peter lifts two lines out. A line out of Psalm 69, a line out of 109. Now, when biblical writers lift a line, it's not like our temptation to proof text, to find something that uh, we can kind of grab on to express what we want to express. I think when they quote a line, they're lifting the whole psalm into uh, reflection on the issue at hand. Psalm 69 is a psalm that we identify with in describing the crucifixion of Jesus. So this would have been a psalm that would have been highlighted. Boy, if you have your... And one of the things I've sort of uh, determined is I'm not going to put biblical text in my notes. Not because I don't like the Bible. But it's, I, I'm encouraging people to be old-fashioned be so baptistic that you bring your big Bible with you to church. Um, and nobody's laughing. Uh, you're all just sort of stared down at me. Um, but this psalm beautifully expresses the agony of the cross. And it is what the disciples were praying in that upper room. They put gall in my food. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. And then the psalmist, in verse 22 and following in Psalm 69, goes on to describe what should happen to people who have done this sort of thing. It's an imprecatory psalm. It's a psalm that is calling down curses on those who have done sin and evil. May the table set before them become a snare. Well, when they, when they prayed Psalm 69, they thought of Judas seated at the table, receiving the bread in the upper room. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened. The line that's pulled out is verse 28. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. That's how Peter is interpreting the destiny of Judas, and that's how they are interpreting it together. Psalm 109 uh, is along this same vein. Psalm 109 is an imprecatory psalm. Imprecatory meaning calling down curses, uh, imprecations. Uh, 
And Psalm 109 reads in verse 4, In return for my friendship they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Again, you have a description of the cross and what Jesus suffered. But then, verse 6, appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. May the evil that has been administered fall back on the one who's been perpetrating the evil. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. That's the line that Peter lifts out in this uh, pray through solidarity. They're praying the Psalms to give them guidance as to how to bring closure to the Judas incident. Uh, Might we do the same thing? Uh, Might we pray the Psalms to get perspective? yeah, I just don't think it's the Holy Spirit working at that particular time with them in terms of praying the Psalms to bring insight and direction and perspective on how to deal with Judas. I think it's also a guide to us because I think praying the Psalms is something that ought to be part and parcel of the Christian life. Uh, I think we all can uh, acknowledge that it's hard to pray easy to daydream. It's hard to let our, it's, it's hard to be focused and intentional about our prayers. Easy to let our minds wander. I think if we take their example here, these early disciples and apostles are praying the Psalms and getting guidance as to how to process Judas's betrayal. The language is also interesting. He gave up his lot and uh, you don't know how far to, to, to dwell on that. But remember the Levites didn't have land. They didn't have a lot. They were given land from other tribes, but their lot was to, do, to minister as priests. That was their lot. That was their task. And it's just ironic that Judas gave up his lot and bought land. And the land then became this field of blood. Remember, he didn't actually do the purchase of the land because he threw the 30 pieces of silver, the Pharisees. And there's there's no sense of, there's tremendous regret and remorse on Judas's part, but not repentance. Uh, I don't think we get any indication from Judas other than the fact that uh, he felt really badly for turning in an innocent person, a friend, Jesus. There's no sense here that he understands what he has done in, ter- in terms of betraying the Messiah. But that 30 pieces of silver was picked up by the religious leaders and, perch- and they used that to purchase this field because they needed some place, apparently, to put... Uh, outsiders and foreigners in the grave. Interesting. Uh, So Judas gives up his lot, uh, which is the ministry, which we are all in, in Christ, for this piece of land. 
Uh, two and three there, I describe uh, what I've already said about Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Number four on our outline, the selection process for the new apostle sought to honor Jesus' precedent-setting selection of 12. So we come to sort of this last paragraph of how do we choose the 12th person? And the 12th person, then, is a person who's been with the disciples from the beginning. They witnessed John the Baptist's identification of Jesus as the Lamb of God. They were there at his baptism. They've been there every step of the way. Uh, you know, we haven't quite kept track of this. Uh, the disciples always seem to be somewhat in... Uh, in the midst of a crowd, but within that crowd then, there's been a group of people that have really been following Jesus. They were there, so the, the, this 12th person needs to be there from that point to uh, the resurrection and to the uh, pre-ascension appearances of Jesus. Two people are nominees for the 12th position. Joseph or Justice and Matthias. And they met the qualifications. Uh, and they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart, number five. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. What do you think? I mean, there's several interesting aspects here, yeah? I just had a question that I wondered about just when I was reading this. I had wondered if the apostles got ahead of themselves, because it seems like God chose Paul to be the 12th apostle, and they were the ones maybe that Well, you're in good company. It's been a debate. G. Campbell Morgan, I don't know if any of you know that name, but a famous British pastor who pastored Westminster Chapel before Martin Lloyd-Jones. So his dates are like early 20th century, 1909 to 1930-something. Also spent 14 years in between his Westminster, some 30 years in... Westminster Chapel, uh, 14 years at Biola in L.A., which is a, yeah, that's a strange sort of... Uh, I grew up reading sermons by G. Campbell Morgan, uh, and wow, does he do a number on the uh, apostles here that they blew it. They made a grave mistake. Paul was the 12th apostle. Uh, but, you know, 12, uh, Paul doesn't qualify. He wasn't there from the beginning. He didn't witness John the Baptist's uh, uh, recognition and baptism of Jesus. So, I mean, the, at least the, the criteria, now G.K. Morgan would say that uh, the apostles should have done nothing. Ah, I would have such trouble countering Luke's perspective here and the description of what the apostles did. Uh, I think there ought to be something of I guess my attitude toward the scripture is a receptivity to what is described for us and not me sitting in judgment over the apostles. I'd feel very awkward uh, doing that. 
What do you think of the casting lots? <laughs> well, as, as, as stage two, you know, stage one is the responsibility to really adjudicate who's qualified. And they do that. And I think it's, a, you know, it's, it's wise on their part. Just think, you know, Joseph can accept this much easier than a Democratic vote because the group has already said both these men would work. Uh, and now let's, let's pray and kind of draw straws. Uh, that's not how they actually did it. They put things in a bowl and, and you know, different colored stuff. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's not a gamble. It's a prayed, prayed for resolution. Uh, with two good people. So I think we should choose our leaders maybe that way after we've gotten two good or more multiple people that are well qualified. It's a beautiful thing that the apostles say here in their prayer, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry. And it's one word in Greek, heart knower, number six, the second line. It's cardio and gnosis. Cardio standing for heart and gnosis standing for knowledge. And you are the heart knower. Uh, and you, as you read Acts, pay attention to this heart, heart knowing dimension because it's not, the, it's not the only time this is going to be referred to. Uh, the heart and understanding the true self in all of this is is something that Luke pays attention to. Uh, the phrase recalls the word of the Lord to Samuel when he said, The Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And you just notice here, you know, we are so tied into appearance. Uh, read anything that we... Uh, descriptive that we have of, of people in the culture, oftentimes we begin with how they look. We don't get anything in, of that in the first century. Uh, I, in visiting Ghana, uh, the first time especially, I realized I had gone for a week without looking at myself in the mirror. That's their culture. Uh, our culture is, man, can you go 15 minutes without looking at yourself in the mirror? Um, we just, who would write this without describing Joseph's appearance or Matthias's appearance or their body language or their, I mean, that's just how we, how we relate uh, in terms of description. Uh, but the Lord looks on the heart. Uh, and that requires uh, you know, us to pay attention maybe more to, uh, to how we understand a person's heart and not so much how they look. You know, I have met people that, it's really interesting. I, if you've, uh, I've met some of my relatives who don't look that good. <laughs> but as a kid, you meet them. 
um, you know, your, your, your formation of their character starts when you're really young. And, you know, I realize I see them as beautiful people. If you look at them uh, through eyes of our judgment of appearance, they don't look that good, but wow. Um, they, they are wonderful, beautiful people. Um, number seven, we never hear about Matthias and Joseph again. After all of this reflection. Uh, but you don't hear of any of the apostles again. Really. You hear of uh, James dying in Acts 12. You hear of uh, John, of course. You hear of Peter. Uh, but most of them are unnamed. We never will hear of Mary, the mother of Jesus, again. This is the last reference to Mary. Uh, uh, this is another thing that uh, Osvaldo Padilla brings out in his book, how, how selective uh, this history, and we could say, has to be. I mean, if uh, you could write volumes on just what is transpiring here, it could produce a book. Uh, if we produce books the way we produce books on politics, uh, yeah, it would. Um, but there's, it's highly selective, it's, uh, it's abbreviated, uh, and what Luke has done is distill it down to what we really need to know in understanding the theology of the early church. You know, one of the things that the church has struggled with is apostolic succession, depending on what tradition you come from, and apostolic tradition. I think, you know, in the orbit that most of us are in, we have focused on the apostolic tradition. That apostolic tradition has been preserved by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the gift that God gives at Pentecost. It has not been reduced to apostolic succession and personalities. Um, and the idea that somehow there's a literal succession that moves all the way back in person to the apostles is something that the Reformation worked against that notion. It was the apostolic tradition that was valuable, not the apostolic succession. One of the things that would give us factual sort of reference to that is in Acts 12, 2, where James, not the brother of Jesus, who wrote the epistle, but James, uh, brother of John, is killed. And there's no move to replace him. Now, you know, if, if apostolic succession was really important, then you would have another extensive prayer meeting and another choice to replace the 12. Why is the 12 such a big deal? It's a big deal because the First Testament, the Old Testament, is intricately, fundamentally, foundationally important to the New Testament. And 12, that symbolic number of the 12 tribes of Israel, and all that that represented, now is carried over into the early church. And this new covenant that God is making. 
in terms of the gospel. Well, it's about time. Any questions, thought? Bottom line, pray the Psalms and thank the Lord that he knows our hearts. Yes. I'm sorry. Mary, I thought Mary was at the cross when Jesus died. Is that a different Mary? I'm not hearing you. What about Mary? Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at the cross. You were saying this was subsequent to this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mary was definitely at the cross. This is taking place after Jesus' appearances of 40 days and and leading up to Pentecost, uh, this is the last time she's mentioned. Uh, yeah. Okay, I have a question. We have just a second. Uh, Bill and I have talked about this before. The, the situation with Judas. Jesus, obviously, in, in fulfilling all this, we knew that, that there had to be the, the person that, that Judas became. Did Judas ever have a chance? I mean, did Judas have a choice? Did Judas have any any possibility of saying, no, I'm not going to do this? Or was it all preordained that this was Jesus knew this was the man who was going to betray him? And was he evil from the beginning? I mean, <laughs> and then you see what the what the other disciples did with him. Right. I, mean, I don't know the answer to that. I'm just, I'm asking. Yeah, the paradox of God's providential will and the ordination of, of history uh, thrown up against uh, Judas's freedom. Yeah, I think Judas was free to repent and respond. And if you read like the Gospel of John closely, Jesus gives Judas multiple opportunities, multiple opportunities to yeah, quit. I mean, he, he exposes Judas to Judas, but not really to the disciples. I mean, he's, I, I think it's a beautiful way that Jesus kept working to turn Judas's mind and heart toward him. Uh, I can't answer that paradox of being ordained. I don't think it, providence of God is ever fated. I don't think, it's not Islamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't explain that. I can't explain the paradox of fully God, fully human. There's a lot of paradox in scriptural truth that we live into. It's part of the mystery and mess of the human condition, the mystery of God and the mess of the human condition. So I can't answer that. I don't know. Except uh, to be impressed with how Jesus counseled Judas, even accepting the kiss and let it be. Um, uh, Martin Luther, you know, our tendency is to see a singular Judas. Martin Luther says, we got Judases all over the place. Of course, that's typical of Martin Luther's way of speaking. Um, we got Judases all over the place, and uh, they're on every vestry, they're on every session, they're on every board. Uh, it's just interesting to hear him. Uh, we still have this kind of Peter Judas dilemma that takes place in the life of the church. Uh, 
Peter's restored fully, and Judas goes to his destiny. I'll pray. Lord God, thanks for your goodness to us. This week, make us mindful of your presence and that you know our hearts. You are the great heart knower. Guide us, Lord, in your truth, we ask in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.